Hi there, this is Bob Eubanks, and you're listening to Fab Four Free For All. But doesn't everybody? Welcome to another edition of the Fab Four Free For All. My name is Rob Leonard, and joining me are my co-hosts, Tony Truguardo. Uh, hi, folks. And Mitch Axelrod. Howdy, folks. And today we're interviewing author of the latest book on John Lennon called John Lennon 1980, The Last Days in the Life. We're talking to Professor Kenneth Womack, who works at Monmouth University. We've also had him on to talk about the George Martin books he wrote and Solid State, Abbey Road, the history of Abbey Road, the album. And welcome back to our show, Ken. How are you? So very good to see you guys. Likewise, sir. Thank you. You wouldn't um, say that if you weren't wearing your glasses. Well, you were, you're all wearing your glasses, so maybe you should take them off. Now it's, it's even really better. really good to see Tony. <laughs> we, we, we should say that this is also, besides a podcast, it is also a video podcast. So you might see the four of us in squares uh, if you're watching it. And if not, you're listening and you don't care. So anyway, um, Ken, let's start off with the question I always start off with. Uh, why did you write this book about the last days of John Lennon? What, what, did well, we, what were you hoping to find? Well, as you guys know, as well as anybody, there are a lot of Beatles books, of course, but there are very, very many books on John Lennon. And in fact, a number of them that deal with this very period, perhaps not at the same you know, level of rigor and, and attention to time detail. But um, I, I felt like we needed a book that uh, took a deep dive into what New York was like uh, in, in the late 1970s and 1980 to understand the setting where John has this amazing comeback. Um, and it, we needed a book that wasn't uh, a true crime study. I really felt like we needed a book that concentrated on him living uh, and really didn't concentrate on the inevitable con conclusion that we all know is coming. Hey, Ken, you know, um, we talked about this offline a little bit. <clears throat> I'm going to bring it up again. But uh, how do you go about when you, know, when you were thinking about this book, um, obviously, a lot of people don't like to remember December 8th and the time leading up to it. So did that come into play when you were thinking about your research, how far to go with this? And maybe right off the bat, there would be a, uh, a misconception or a misperception of what is in the book, uh, because there's been other books called, you know, one's called December 8th, 1980. Uh, I didn't touch it because of that fact. I just don't want to remember because we lived it. So was there any consideration taken into that, those points? I made a rule for myself at the beginning, which really served me well. And that was if John can see it and it's right in front of him or experience it, or he would have logically heard about it. So for example, maybe he wasn't in the room for one of Yoko's meetings with David Gevin, Geffen, but you know, she was calling him right away afterwards, right? That sort of thing. Um, if, if it wasn't within his purview or he might not have known it, it didn't go in. So, that really uh, insulated me from having to talk about the killer, for example. John never knows this guy. You know, he has a brief interaction. It means that, um, you know, some of the salacious material covered in, say, Goldman book, for example, you know, I don't have to go there. Um, that's not part of what he's looking at and what he's seeing. So it really helped to have that rule uh, because, of course, there are a lot of very controversial books that have been written about him. Um, and I wanted mine to be about the music 
and the making of those great songs, which is what I think we're all interested in. Um, and, and of course, it was John's own words, right? When he said many times in those last months of his life, you know, you all want us to, to have a reunion, but it's the music that matters. You've got all those records. Mm. Mm. You, you said a key, well, it's an obvious keyword for the, the topic, but you say the word music in there. You can't say music without muse. And the cool thing about the book is that you, you know, the book is called 1980, but you, you start before that. And did you sort of have to find yourself kind of um, seeing how far you were going to backtrack? Because it seems to me like it's, you start at a great point because you kind of start when John's muse is coming back in a way. And did that sort of become a focus for you or a, a, just an important aspect of the book for you? Because it's, it's, you reflect it really well in the book, is the thought. Right. And, and his, his loss of muse or inspiration is very complicated, right? Because it's not some simple thing where he's just not inspired. As we know so well, John Lennon always had a live mind. Um, even when he might have been depressed, his mind was working. He was reading a lot. So I don't know that he was, it was ever a case of, of not being inspired, but uh, it's a complicated muse in the, in the sense that he's also having to go back into a world that as the 1970s wear on, he has increasingly not been a part of, right? So yeah. it becomes a crisis of confidence too, I would argue. Um, and he's watching all of these acts that we now call dinosaurs, uh, and some of whom I think may have been dinosaurs even then, uh, you know, walking the earth like Brontosaurus. Rob, help me. Brontosaurus. Brontosaurus. There you go. That was helpful. Um, thank you. Uh, I'm, English, I'm an English professor, everybody. Um, so, um, in any event, um, you know, he he is seeing a very fraught and competitive world. Um, and of course, he also has the small matter of uh, an infant at home. And anyone who's ever been a parent understands how life-changing that is, particularly at this point in his life when he is slightly older and, of course, very dedicated to bringing up his son in a very contrasting way to how things went with Julie. So um, it, it's a complicated missing muse to talk about. Right, hmm. right. But it's also... Okay. Oh, sorry. Okay. No, you go. No, I was going to say, but, it, but it's also, as you, you mentioned, it's him getting back into uh, that world again. And that's something that you, you also cover very, very well, in my opinion, just in terms of how he, it's almost as though the, 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 everything was stacking in his favor in a way to, to come back. And I like the way you put the pieces together in that, but did you, did you kind of find that, that there were, there were forces working towards him making this return in a, in a way? I suppose, um, you know, you asked a moment ago, and, and I don't think I, I adequately answered your question, you know, why go back so far? Well, I didn't in, originally intend to do that, but, you know, we always have to think about those folks who may be coming to John Lennon for the first time who may not understand mm -hmm. uh, why and how it was that the lost weekend occurred, who might not understand how the Beatles' interrelationships, even in their disbandment, disbandment were important, who might not understand uh, how John's five years progressed. And of course, one of the great myths of that last period is that he wrote everything in Bermuda, which of course is not true. He had a number of these songs uh, in various states of production, well, composition rather, 
uh, I guess in some production, given the state of the, the demos, uh, he had many of those already uh, working. Uh, but yeah, I think a number of things worked in his favor, uh, one of which uh, was the fact that his kid was about to be five, you know, and he felt a little more confident about, you know, leaving the home a little bit more. His, uh, uh, he had tried a number of other genres, which I think is very interesting. He had tried his mind movies, his sort of tape-recorded comic adventures. He'd had, he had tried to write his audio diary at one point. Um, he had tried to write a musical. Uh, he had tried to write uh, the story of the Ballad of John and Yoko longhand. So he had made many attempts. And of course, all along, he's making his cartoons uh, that were so beloved. So um, I do think things were aligning in the right way. And uh, I don't know if I'm sure you guys remember this like I do. When he, when he and Yoko took out their favorite famous love letter, uh, what was it, in 1979, mm -hmm. um, even as a, a very young person, I remember thinking, oh, that's a prelude to something coming, you know. Yeah. yeah. I'm going I'm to have a John Lennon debut here. It's going to be exciting, <laughs> you know. At a time when we were, like, conscious and ready for it, which is very cool. Anyway. Right. And, and I felt like they were, in, and I think it's correct, right, that they were testing the waters. Yeah. Sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ken, um, when you look back at the history of it, uh, four and a half years isn't a long time for an artist to walk away from the game, so to speak. But it was back then. Can you just give a little background for, for some people who might not realize that not putting out a record for four years about artists of John Lennon's statue was a big deal? This is one of my favorite aspects of working on this project. And that is sort of, uh, you know, doing a little time travel and going back to the late seventies um, when life was appreciably different. Again, that's why I wanted to spend so much time making sure that setting for New York City felt real, because it's not the same place. You guys know that as well as anybody, better than I do, um, having been lifelong residents. Um, so uh, I, I wanted to make sure we could make that, that time jump, which is so important. It was a different world. John Lennon watched the same TV shows we did. <laughs> he listened yeah. to the same music. And he often listened to it and watched it at the same times we were watching it. Because it was a smaller world in terms of technology, media, entertainment. Um, and I, I just find that endlessly fascinating. Um, but going back to your question, <laughs> you know, when you think about when you think about that period, there was a certain level of connection that we all shared, you know, that is that's gone. Um, and I, I like thinking about that. I like thinking about the way the music industry was, you know, to be more specific. As you said, a band now, uh, you know, like you two will take, what, three or four years off. Uh, and that may be before they start thinking about the record. You know, um, it's incredible how today's dinosaurs operate. Um, I'm not going to try to pluralize anything anymore, but but you're dead <laughs> on right, Rob. I mean, it was just a different industry, but it was also different in the sense that, you know, labels expected more out of their artists and more regular fare, you know, every year, practically. Right. Well, because, look at the Beatles. I mean, how many did they do a year? Right. Oh, God, um, yeah. But, you know, in the 70s, remember, uh, labels would still invest in bands that didn't have a hit yet. You know, so they might invest in three or four records. I mean, look at bands like Ario Speedwagon or, or Supertramp, right? Their, their labels invested in them for a long time before they ever paid off. I'll never forget uh, Rick Davies being on TV when, uh, when Breakfast in America hit. And he's like, we're finally going to get out of some of our debt. 
Not yeah. all of our debt, but we're going to be able to pay off some of it. And Breakfast in America, you know, ruled the world for a moment a there. Time, so, yeah. um, but but I think it's a very salient point. Four and a half years, uh, not having a, a single out or any kind of peep as far as music goes was a big deal. And, and everybody noticed Rolling Stone writers like Dave Marsh, for example, um, you know, would call him out for it and would say, what, what gives here, pal? Mm. Yeah. You know, yeah. Ken, the, the writing style of the book, which I've told you I've really loved, it, it feels like you're right there with John and whomever he's with. So two, th uh, two part question for you. Uh, thank goodness it's not a four part question. Uh, but the two part question is, you know, how did you come up with that style? Because you weren't there with them, uh, with John and whomever. And also a, one person that you in, that you bring up a lot in the book is Fred Seaman, and he's kind of controversial to the, the whole John Lennon story, uh, whether people know that or not. But uh, so, again, the, the writing style and Fred Seaman. Sure. Um, well, I, I think the writing style is me for the most part. You know, I, I want to feel like I'm in the room. Um, I'm interested in nonfiction that gives you that sense, almost like an historical novel. Mm-hmm you know, that you're there, that you're watching something unfold, whether it's yeah. mundane or small or really earth shattering. Um, I, I like the feel of those kinds of books. And I think most people do. I think that's the trend that nonfiction is, uh, is enjoying at the moment. And, and I believe will increasingly do. Definitely. Um, so I, I just am interested in those kinds of books because of course um, what it does is it gives you a sense of non-certitude, Right you know, you hear about things that are happening, but they haven't happened yet. And mm -hmm. I learned a lot about that writing about George Martin, because until 1966, they were still worried that, you know, someday this might all collapse on us. <laughs> there's a part, there's a place where we may have to get jobs, you know? <laughs> um, you know, uh, so there's, there's a lot of risk still in the air, even at that late date, of course, back in 1966, who imagines retiring as a rock and roller? You don't. Uh, so that's also a very different period. But I like that kind of unfolding of a story. Um, we're also fortunate a number of folks have uh, have just done some great work in uh, providing excellent reference materials for this kind of study uh, and, and others really about John Lennon. You know, you've got Chip Madinger with his book, uh, Lennonology, which, you know, uh, you know, think about it. 10, 15 years ago, we weren't even sure about when some things happened. Right. Uh, to be quite frank, you know, right. so that's that's a wonderful luxury uh, to be able to pinpoint dates. Uh, Ken Sharp's book, Starting Over, you know, he talked to Great some book. people who many people who are no longer with us. Um, so, you know, that's very valuable in the same way that Mark Lewison uh, for Tune In managed to speak to several people in the nick of time uh, before uh, they they shuffled off this mortal coil. There's the English professor, Rob. You can feel better now. Um, so part two of the question, though, is Fred Seaman. And um, I, uh, I got some knocks about Fred even bef before the book was published uh, by folks who had heard about the story. And they said, you better not talk to Fred. Several people very upset about this. And all I can say to them is, um, well, two things. One, uh, you have to talk to Fred. Um, yeah, and I understand why he's a controversial figure. Uh, he made a number of very serious mistakes uh, in his 20s and compounded them later with other actions. Um, I think he's aware of that. Um, I think despite 
what uh, what we may read. I think he adored John and Yoko uh, almost to the point. Um, I mean, it's almost worshipful at times uh, in a good way. And and of course, you can ask him. And what was the most exciting time when you work with John and Yoko making Double Fantasy? He was watching it happen, you know. Uh, but he is a controversial figure. Um, but there are so many. Uh, instances in that last year where he is the only guy there. Yeah. Mm. You know, I mean, you would literally have weeks go by with very little to report. Um, And, you know, Fred was his guy. Fred was his assistant who uh, fortunately Fred saved many of the lists of things that he would go procure for John. You know, even if it was his dry cleaning or books or records um, it's fascinating reading uh, food, a lot of food. Uh, You know, those are just, indelible and and vital documents that we have because of this guy. And again, you know, you put that together with some of the sources I just named and you start to get a clear picture that you wouldn't have otherwise. Right. Having said that, um, you know, I worked really hard to go out and and be able to, um, with all of this material, confirm it. You know, I mean, Fred has moments in his book where he editorializes you know, that didn't have a place here Uh, because I wanted to, you know, you guys all know the, I'm sure you do. uh, The first rule of writing is show, not tell. Yes. Right. So if you're going to show, not tell, you're going to do less editorializing and more simply demonstrating what's happening in a particular scene. Hmm. And I think that helps with that kind of challenge. But um, I understand why people have uh, strong opinions about him. Uh, I understand uh, in some cases it's, it's a, I don't know, I guess it's a warm hearted defense of Yoko, but she's pretty tough. I think she can handle it. Um, But secondly, I don't know how you explore parts of this story without hearing from him. Right. At some level. You know, Ken, you just, you mentioned the in defense of Yoko and you also talk about show and tell. And the one thing in the book that, that I is definitely a takeaway for me is that you you show the relationship between John and Yoko and was there you know was there a sense of discovery for you about not to be you know hokey but in a way it's sort of like you're writing this story about the comeback the music etc but so much of it seems to be inter intertwined with like the subtitle of the double fantasy album it's a heart play you know but did you, um, you know, did you find yourself sort of wanting to make sure you did justice to the, the John and Yoko story at that sort of end of its run, just as much so as, as the music side in a way? You bet. And I think, uh, as you're suggesting, Tony, it was integrally involved, right? Because um, what's beautiful about them and what I love about their story, and I, I have a greater appreciation for it now than I, than I certainly did before, is how they served as each other's cheerleaders in the best possible way. You know, Mm -hmm. here they are, they're married at this point for 12 years. um, And we've had, uh, you know, in the intervening years, uh, many books that have speculated wildly, sometimes quite meanly, quite frankly, about them. Um, And all I can see, at least for the part that matters to them, is that they are incredible cheerleaders for each other. And 12 years into a marriage, that's a pretty damn good thing. Yeah. yeah, you know yeah. they um, and and even the way and you can see John speaking in similar tones uh, about you know the other Beatles, 
uh, and in quite moving ways. Um, even when he wanted to bash George at one point in his interview with David Sheff, he says, now, don't go too far with this because I love that guy. Right. I'm mad at him right now, <laughs> you know, but but this will pass. Um, and speaking about Paul on his very last hours, you know, about how he would do anything for him. Um, so I found that all to be very moving, but especially so with Yoko, who has been this lightning rod forever uh, and, and so often unfairly. And I, I have a greater appreciation for why. Whatever happened in that marriage, and that's their business, right? That's not the story of this book. Whatever it was, they really fought hard for each other. And, and those scenes when they're with David Geffen are moving, you know, Yoko pulling David Geffen aside and saying, this is important to John and John doing the very same thing. You know, this Yoko hasn't had a hit like we have had, you know, in these sorts yeah. of conversations. I find that really moving. And the most moving moment for me in the book, the entire thing is what, 10 days before he's murdered. And uh, they've learned that you know, uh, the album is not selling like they thought it would. And Yoko comes to him uh, in the living room and, and the Dakota and she has to tell him this thing. And she knows it's important to him because, you know, he has this plan to go back triumphantly to England. He's going to take a liner, an ocean liner up the Thames to London and then make his way like a conquering hero with Sean and Yoko. And they're going to go up to Liverpool to the family, the family home, you know, and see the relatives and all of this great business. And she, he is sort of set up in his mind the way that this will take place. And she says, it's just not selling like we thought it would, you know, and she's, she's basically there to apologize or, or break the bad news. And he says, it's okay. We've still got the family. And I love that because that is not the guy that John Lennon was in earlier years. By his own admission, he would have these primal fits, right, when things went wrong or he would become depressed. And instead, um, I, I like to think that when he says that, he's recognizing that it was the experience of making that music that mattered. Yeah. And yeah. And not yeah. how it's going to be received. He got what he was going to get out of it in, in truth. And of course, you know, 10 days later, there he is on the in the last hour, perhaps, of his life saying this is the direction yeah. when, they, when they work on walking on thin ice, you know, so he's always looking forward in, a, in the right way. Yeah. At yeah. that point in his life. Ken, uh, one thing I really enjoyed about the book is um, we know that John goes down to Bermuda and um that's where he focuses that he knows that he's coming back and he's going to make a record basically. And he starts to rewrite other songs that, you know, were different, but maybe they, he borrowed parts and bits and pieces. And I noticed in the book, your chapter is the same way. There's a, there's a definite focus, I think on, okay, this is where it starts. Everything before leads to this, but this is where it starts. And I was wondering, was that on purpose and how important was John going to Bermuda? Why not, you know, you know, Canada? Why not England? Why not anywhere? Why did he go to Bermuda? Um, and, and the focus on, on those demos, which some of them would be rewritten. And then, of course, some, you know, something like Woman, um, you know, came right out of there. So, yeah, um, I think the answer to that is, you know, he he had to make his seafaring voyage. He had been putting all of this effort for months now into learning how to sail with Tyler Conies. And, uh, you know, he was going to make this trip. And the easiest trip um, was to go from Newport, Rhode Island 
to to Bermuda. And I believe it was also because uh, I apologize if I'm mis- making a mistake here, but I think it was also because Yoko had a directional guy yeah. uh, yes. who had yeah, talked about that. going uh, in a southeasterly direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, they look at the geography and it makes sense to take a charter from from Rhode Island to Bermuda, which was a, a fairly common charter. Um, and, and I think that's the most important reason why he gets there. But he's also, um, you know, unabashedly a fan of, of reggae. So he's excited about the idea of, of soaking up some of the music um, and uh you know, he liked to be in a different place too. There's the, there are these moments throughout the Beatles' career where they will have sojourns in other places, um, you know, to work on some material. And he did need to finish a lot of songs. There were uh, literally dozens of them. You know, he would carry them around in his bag, and his he'd have all these cassettes with him, and and that sort of thing. Um, but I think it has a lot to do with that that charter. It's interesting so, you bring that up because you're talking about you know going to different places. But it's funny how there isn't too much a sign of him having really done much writing in Japan when he'd gone in with, gone with Yoko and, uh, you know, with the family, which is interesting. You know, you, I'm thinking back to, wow, yeah, sure. They went to uh, Rishikesh. They went to, and, and all the inspiration at that game and Bermuda was a huge inspiration, but there wasn't that trip, that trip to Japan is sort of, which you talk about in the book, but multiple trips to Japan, yeah, but not really too much in the way of production from that side, which is interesting. He didn't come back and write a, he wrote a reggae record, didn't come back and write a Japanese sounding piece of music. That's but, interesting. Yeah. I, uh, I don't know what to, I hadn't spent enough time thinking about that. I mean, you know, we know his, his, according to Elliot Mintz, his last performance, right. Was in their suite yeah. in what 1977 uh, with acoustic yeah. guitar where a couple randomly gets <laughs> off the elevator and turns around and leaves. Um, <laughs> I wish we had that set list. Oh. <laughs> I wish we had their names. <laughs> That's true. Well, there was probably a version of Sakura probably in there. Anyway, I'm sorry. Could be, but, and, uh, yeah. yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I yeah, I'm, I'm, that's that bears some more research. Yeah. Can the, the uh, another big player, another character, so to speak, in John and Yoko's life and New York life was the Dakota, and obviously it's big in this book. You go into very good detail and depth um, about the Dakota, which I hadn't read before, which is kind of nice because, you know, you always wonder why did John and Yoko pick the Dakota? Uh, Can you talk about the Dakota in terms of John and Yoko? Sure. And, you know, and they adored their home and Mm -hmm. I, you know, to her, you know, her credit, there she is today. Um, Yoko still living there. Um, uh, You know, I I think many of us might've left. (laughs) Right. Uh, But I, I don't know. I think there's also something prideful to say about staking your claim, you know, and, and, and standing and staying there sort of like Jackie, right? Jackie O when the, or Jackie Kennedy um, with the dress on that terrible day. Uh, So um, yeah, it's, it's, it is a character in the story as almost as much as many of the people um, because it is this place they selected very carefully. It was, pre-tested with a seance, as you know, um, <laughs> you know, they, they checked out the karma of the place. Um, it provided them, and this does matter in the seventies, right? Upper West side, it had some seedy places, but it felt safer uh, than their, their place down, uh, down in the village. Right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, so they chose this place very, very specifically. It gave them uh, an entree into being able to get more apartments 
which I think is uh, equally interesting. You know, today, rock stars like a Bruce Springsteen or a Paul McCartney have, I think in both of their cases, multiple warehouses where they store, store the paraphernalia that you gather over a long career. At this point, John has a lot of stuff that is uh, that they've been accumulating, and it's sort of off in various pockets. I remember talking to May Pang about how she brought some of it back uh, to New York from Tittenhurst Park, you know, as part of her assignment. So um, that that second apartment that they later procure, apartment 71, um, is the place where they store a lot of this stuff, you know, and they have a basement storage unit and a couple of other places in, in the building. So it really is their home. I mean, they have all of this material in it. Um, and I find it interesting in that way. It's also interesting in that it it's so often described, and I do it too, as a fortress-like building, right? right. It seems impenetrable. Um, and yet, again, we're going back to the 70s, right? People keep getting in. Kids get in. <laughs> Great uh, story in there. Paul Gorish gets in pretending to be a TV repairman. You know, pe the people are getting through sometimes on the phone. Um, you know, it's it's kind of nutty uh, on how how many folks are able to to get through that system. But of course, it felt different because it was the 1970s. You know, you expected kids to make prank calls and and do silly things and sneak into places because you figured they were harmless because in our experience they really mostly were. Yeah, but John and Yoko didn't ha you know, hold themselves up there like a lot of people think. Also, you said Fortress. You know, they joined in a bunch of things that were happening at Dakota, didn't they? Oh, absolutely. They participated annually in the potluck. They looked forward to it. Uh, they, they had commerce with their neighbors. They knew who they were. They were friendly with some, not as friendly with others, like, say, Lauren Bacall, who <laughs> kind of got tired of the fans. Uh, who essentially never left in her lifetime, if you think about it. I'm, yeah. um, you know, Maybe she got jealous. Could be. And we, we know, should yeah. specify that potluck had nothing to do with, for those who don't know the term, that was when everyone brought their own meals, as opposed Not to their own pot. who had yeah, the yeah. best dough. Right. Anyway, until, yeah. until Paul McCartney visited. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. That would be different. Um, and then it was real potluck. <laughs> yeah. No, they, and John and Yoko would bring sushi. They were always proud to, you know, right. which meant something different back then because people weren't as used to it as part of right. their cuisine. Yeah. Yeah, Leonard Bernstein and his family lived there. And at one, in fact, one uh, one potluck, he had them learn a round of one of John's poems that they sang for him, and he loved it. You know, and Bernstein was a huge uh, Lennon and Beatles fan. Uh, right. So, you know, while there was some friction because of the sheer amount of attention he drew, uh, for the most part, his neighbors loved him. You know, and and liked. You know, there was a certain pun, uh, cachet, I'm sure, with being in a building where they lived. It's nice to hear that because I always thought that the, uh, John and Yoko did have a lot of friends. We, we heard about Peter Boyle and his wife, Lorraine. But I always felt that they were kind of alone a lot of the times, that there wasn't a lot of people around them because it just, you know, they didn't travel with a real entourage or anything. And um, I you know, always got that impression they didn't know as many people as we would expect them to know. You know, you, know, we, you expect Mick to show up every night. He doesn't. <laughs> no. You know? Stuff like that. Even or, though he lives nearby, yeah. Or uh, Paul does show up a bunch of times, but, you know, it's... He's not welcome. <laughs> he said he's told to come back another day, which is understandable. You know, sure. so... You know, uh, if you notice, though, a lot, of, a lot of the friends you start to see them have during this period are like any couple, you know, in their late 30s or in Yoko's case, you know, early 40s. 
a lot of the friends are the friend, uh, the parents of the other kids your kid plays with. So when you look mm-hmm. at the, um, you know, at the at the birthday parties that John and Sean have, their twin birthday parties, I think several years at what Tavern on the Green, right? Yeah. Yep. A lot of those kids and the parents are coming because of, you know, of of the the friends of Sean, um, like the the folks who live just next door, who in fact own Tavern on the Green. <laughs> you know, so they have this kind of shared group of of kids who hang out and that's how parents often develop their friends right at that point and the rest of the time and i think john and yoko fall into this category you're exhausted <laughs> yeah imagine and a then play you wake date. up and you try and do it the next day <laughs> a play date and your parents you know the parents are john and yoko you know hey, yeah. kids got you up all night and you got to sell a cow and record an album on this anyway <laughs> anyway <laughs> We're going to take a break right now. You're listening to the Fab Four Free for All, our interview with Kenneth Womack, author of John Lennon, 1980, The Last Days in His Life. We'll be back right after this. Hi, folks. This is Tony from Fab Four Free for All. As Mitch has mentioned several times, the cast of Fab Four Free for All do not profit in any way doing these shows for all of you. In fact, we actually lose money because of studio time and other production expenses. Now, we have looked into show sponsors, but for a number of reasons, we've decided it would be in the best interest of all of us, including you, our listeners, not to have sponsored ads in our shows. So, what we've done is set up a Patreon account. Patreon is a crowdfunding platform that allows artists to obtain funding from patrons on a recurring basis. Now, it can be as little or as much as you think you can send to us, for the work that we put into providing quality Fab Four free-for-all shows. Now, we know that we have thousands of worldwide listeners, and if each of you just contributed a dollar a month, that's just 25 cents per episode, we would have enough to retire and not have to do these shows. (laughs) Sorry. Seriously, though, we've gotten some great feedback from everyone about how much these shows mean to you, and we feel the same way. But it would be nice if we could break even in terms of costs so that we can continue to bring these shows to you in a timely fashion. Yeah, I know, we can be delayed every once in a while, but that's because, as John Lennon so beautifully said, life is what happens to you while you're busy making other plans. But we do vow to make every effort to have a quality show to you every week. We only ask that everyone go and visit Patreon.com to at least check out what it's all about and to see if you can contribute a little something in return for all the hard work and effort that we put into these shows for you. Just do a search for Fab Four Free For All, and tell us that you give a buck about what we do. Thanks to all of you for being such great loyal listeners. We're back here on the Fab Four Free For All. We are talking with Ken Womack. He is the author of John Lennon, 1980, The Last Days in the Life, published by Omnibus Press, available wherever you get your books. Um, Mitch, you said you want to ask a question. Uh, about yeah, I wanted to just touch a little bit more about the Dakota because it was very surprising. Uh, you know, I love that there's revelations in this book. I mean, I, I, you know, I think I know everything on the Beatles, which I don't. Well, you and, say you want a revelation. Anyway, I'm sorry. Uh, boo, boo. Oh, I should sorry. hang up right now. Yeah. Anyway, um, but like, the, you know, there was a, a bunch right in the first you know, chapter or so. But one that I really didn't know about and probably because I didn't read too much up on it was that John Lennon was visited by George Martin in the Dakota. 
Uh, and I don't know if how many people really know, you know, they all know about Paul coming in and, you know, going, maybe going to Saturday Night Live and not, and uh, Ringo there a lot. But I don't think many people knew that George Martin had visited him. Well, they certainly, you know, George, George Martin and John Lennon had a pretty rough 1970s um, uh, for a couple of reasons, mostly on the John Lennon side. Uh, you know, John was pretty cantankerous in the early 70s. Um, yeah. You know, he was a, a regular correspondent and uh, letter to the editor writer uh, <laughs> and, of course, very frequently interviewed. And um, he had caught wind of, uh, you know, George Martin's remarks about the heady days of working with the Beatles and um, had felt that he was taking too much credit at times. Uh, this wasn't the first time they felt this way. You know, um, at the end of the summer of 1967, Time famously had a huge spread on the Beatles and gave a lot of credit to the genius behind the Beatles, George Martin. They noticed that, um, <laughs> you know, so um, this, this wasn't a new thing, but by this point, George wasn't necessarily floundering, but he was trying out a lot of new acts, uh, including some that John Lennon probably had never heard of before. And uh, he kind of mocked that. And uh, John, uh, George rather, took it pretty badly. You know, he took it very personally. Um, fortunately, in, in 73, uh, George Martin's credentials get burnished in a big way with Live and Let Die. Um, he starts working with America uh, yeah. and uh, sort of gives their career a much needed jump start. You know, so he starts to see a lot of great positives in his his career as producer. Um, but it does create this kind of schism between them. At one point, John Lennon wrote a, a letter to the editor where he said, don't forget, we still love you, George. You know, just uh, I think he realized, as he often did, that he'd gone too far. Anyway, yeah, but he, also, well, there he was, also did say that he wanted to re-record all the stuff. And well, that was in 1979. Yeah. So, yeah. so, yeah, in December 1979, according to George Martin, George went there. Now, I... I asked Fred about this when I was working on the George Martin book because I knew he was John and Yoko's guy. And uh, he said, you know what? I don't have any recollection of it, but that doesn't mean it didn't happen. <laughs> he said, because as George Martin says, everybody was out. So we were out somewhere else doing something else. And he said, if that's George's memory, then it belongs to him. And so I, uh, I followed up, I believe. Um, wow, I'm suddenly blanking on his name. I apologize. Uh, uh, the, uh, Philip Norman, the author of Shout, uh, had, a, had a citation to this effect. So I thought, okay. Uh, and it, it is a, an interesting meeting because it happens in an interesting time. And, and you know, you had been asking about this earlier, uh, I think Tony, right? About how things were falling into place. Mm -hmm. And that one audio diary that John records in the fall around the time of his uh, 39th birthday is so important because you can hear his stress about, you know, the, the legacy acts like Dylan and McCartney and others. And uh, he's bristling at them and he's working through something. And uh, he, he some, as you read about and study 1979 and those last months, he really seems to be finally putting a couple of those demons maybe in the right place. And the George Martin meeting was good for him in the sense that, um, John's a familiar face. As Yoko said, he was always happy when he saw people from the British Isles uh, come by to visit, and especially somebody like George Martin, who had figured so strongly in their story. George and John really only saw each other once, maybe twice in all of the 1970s. So, um, you know, there was an estrangement there. 
maybe he was there to commiserate over the Sergeant Pepper soundtrack from 19. <laughs> <laughs> I'll stop there. Oh, wait, was that, that was that BG's effigy burning they did outside the Dakota, <laughs> right. right? That was it. Right, right. Well, it, wasn't luck. It, it was Robin Gibb who said uh, that, you know, once you hear their version of Golden Slumbers, it will become the standard, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah. It fell somewhat short of that. <laughs> Um, I'm announcing this for the first time on the Fab Four free for all. Anyway, <laughs> there's your scoop. Anyway, but yeah, that's the night that John famously said, you know, um, if he could, he'd go back and record everything they did. And of course, this is the entirety of George Martin's legacies talking yeah. about, you know, rightly so. I mean, you know, uh, I don't think we can underscore enough his role in that band's success. Um, and, uh, and, and John even underscored that especially he would re-record Strawberry Fields forever, which George mm. Martin had served up to John's specifications, working with, you know, Jeff Emmerich, et cetera. So anyway, he took that kind of badly until he thought to himself, and, and I like this, and I think it's a good way for us to think about the complexities and contradictions of John Lennon. He said, you know, it makes sense because in John's mind, what he's trying to do uh, and the reality of what we can do with music will never live up to his imagination. Yeah. His imagination is yeah. grander than anything that you, you can record with a microphone or, you know, a typewriter. Um, it is more vivid. Uh, and, and he's always working toward that. And of course, Paul McCartney had the same affliction, right? You know, trying to capture the sound in your head is at a certain level, an impossible quest. So, George really consoled himself with that. And of course, you know, a year later, the worst possible thing happens. And then hmm. all he can think about is yeah. John and Yoko and Julian. Yeah. It's, it's interesting, though, too, because I remember the uh, here we had the famous Dennis Elsis interview on WNEW FM where John showed up and he plays a track from the John McLaughlin album uh, as part of his DJing. And uh, Dennis Celsa says, produced by, and John you know, finishes, yeah, produced by George, our old pal, George Martin, you know, and does like a shout out, which is kind of, a, you know, uh, not necessarily an, a, an apology, but it's, it's just nice to see that, like you said, it's John. It's just Jenny, John going, you know, back and he and loved all those it. guys. He loved all those guys and he knew what was going on. Yeah. He always knew, he always seemed to know what was going on. You know, he knew about silly love songs, you know, he knew and liked it apparently, uh, despite what, you know, folks like to believe, but he also <laughs> admired a pop hit, right? And that was a pop hit. Um, <laughs> so I, I find that to be a, a moving story about these guys getting together and, uh, you know, and, and sharing that kind of moment. You, mm. you bring, you bring in another, uh, another character who's obviously always around, but in, in the end of, uh, John's life in this productive year, uh, and you, you know, we touched on it a little bit earlier, but McCartney and and it particularly and and coming up, and that seemed to be a very important. It seems to be a very important element in this in this story, isn't it? It absolutely is. And you know, again, go back to Fred for a moment. You know, we know about the finer details of which happened not far from where some of you are right now. <laughs> 10 minutes uh, away. Yeah, that 10 minutes, uh, minutes as, as the Mitch flies. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Do I fly? You fly <laughs> when I'm with McCartney. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Um, anyway, um, you know, we know some of the finer details because Fred was driving the car when the song came on the radio and John gives in several interviews credit to Paul 
for reigniting, you know, his muse with coming up. It brought back the old competitive energy. That's kind of cool, though, isn't it? The studio version. Yeah, he liked the studio version. He was he actually at one point in another interview says, and I'm not talking about that live version. I'm talking about the studio version. I want the weird one. I like the weird one. So he was aware of everything going on. He really was. And, you know, and of course, the guys in the studio in August and September were peppering him with questions because they knew material really well. Thanks to uh, Jack Douglas as a ranger. They were always asking him questions about the Beatle days. Why'd you guys break up? And John said three words, Maxwell Silverhammer, you know. <laughs> um, and then when they're double tracking, John said, we got a double track. I learned that from the guy, George Martin, pushed the button, said double track, you know. So he was uh, he was steeped in his own history. There's no doubt about it in the right way. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, Ken, by the way, uh, George Martin was paid a lot of money to do the Sergeant Pepper soundtrack. A lot of money. You know, it was I think it opened up his uh, studio in Montserrat. Oh, no, no. <laughs> I mean, I've heard numbers in the double digit millions. Yeah, uh, so for that a project. Lot. No, no. He, he made more money off of that than anything. Right. Probably the original. Pepper. You know, they, they gave us Odessa. They're forgiven. So anyway, I'm just <laughs> anyway, Ken, um, let's get into the, the recording of, of, of double fantasy um, here. They, as always with John, he records those 22 songs with him and Yoko or him and Yoko songs very, very quickly. I mean, I know they, the band had an idea what the music was, but, Still, they, they were what done in two weeks. The the main uh, the main part of the songs they had to add on some things, but basically two weeks they were done. That's incredible. Well, as you know, I mean that's that's John's mo, right? He likes to get in and work on something, and he knows what he wants to get, and he'll be surprised along the way. He's okay with that too, but he doesn't like to spend an inordinate amount of time in the studio. <laughs> which must have explained, you know, how he felt uh, irritated at times during Sgt. Pepper and the White Album, right? Which yeah, just went yeah. on forever. Um, but nevertheless, yeah, that was his M.O. And, and as I, I've said frequently, you know, the, the, the all-star of the production is Jack Douglas's great decision to bring in Tony DeVilio to do all of those arrangements because mm -hmm. then it had this band, uh, it placed them in the enviable space of being able to then ad lib, uh, and create lots of, of other moments in the studio that wouldn't have been possible because they would have been learning the songs uh, in, a, in a more textured fashion. So I, I think Tony DeVilio just does marvelous work. Yeah, and that was unique for John, too, that approach. I mean, John had never done anything like that in his solo career. Like I said, the expediency is one thing, but having an arranger like that, you know, was, was a tremendous, I think, a tremendous advantage. And I could see that definitely as being the future of how they were going he to would never have given that up right i mean that yeah that enabled him to do exactly what rob was just saying in a flash to be able to come in and the band knows your songs you don't have to say hey you drummer do this you know oh, that, yeah. he did yeah. like to do that and, and as you know you can hear that on a lot of the outtakes not that drummer you know <laughs> or i'll say play it like ringo play it like ringo one. yeah <laughs> <laughs> so they brought paul in no i'm kidding, I'm just kidding. <laughs> He would have come. But 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 Tony, just what you were saying, you know, he sort of did that with Walls and Bridges. He went in with the band and rehearsed the band. You yes. know, there, there's all those great outtakes, which yes. are almost or maybe sometimes better than the uh, the release version, because there was a certain relaxation about the rehearsals. That's and true. I, I do hope uh, one day we do see a Walls and Bridges box set just based on that. That was some yeah. of those rehearsals were fantastic. 
Yeah. And there is a similar vibe, you know, yeah. actually, you know, he liked that kind of camaraderie. He just didn't want it to go on for years. Right. <laughs> but he, I mean, I know this is speculating, Ken, but, you know, he seemed to develop a rapport with those guys. And, and again, talking about moving on to another recording project after he liked those guys enough that once the album situation was wrapped up, the, the one thing that, and one thing I love about the book is the book is very joyful, but the fact that the book is joyful, the ending makes you almost sadder because of what would have possibly come. And I, where I'm going is a possible tour with those guys. And, you know, to me, that's one of the, the most interesting things about the, the end game, you know, the end of the story. Yeah. He loved working with them. They were a crack band. Um, they were really good. Yeah, they really were. And, and yeah. they were selected very, very shrewdly by Jack. And, and of course, John had some input too, but they were, it was a smart, it was a smart setup there. And uh, they had, you know, they, they would, they were talking from my understanding from Ken Sharp, they were talking about uh, <laughs> pretty early on touring. In fact, at the rap party, after they do the first round of, uh, of the principal takes, you know, they were, they were having a nice meal and they're bringing it up. And of course, you know, John's thinking, well, it'll be like those Beatle tours, right? You just got to figure out enough songs for 30 minutes. And I think it was Tony yeah. Levin who had just performed with Paul Simon. He's like, no, you, you know, you do two hours now. <laughs> Two hours. But you you do two hours, but you could hear yourself during those two hours. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, because the ampage now, the wattage is it's a whole different story. Uh, he really got into it though. He was making sketches of ideas for you know for stage design. Uh, he was inspired, like I think all of us were, by that that wonderful kooky ashes to ashes video. You know, so he had video ideas that he was kicking around and and increasingly elaborate ideas about what you could do with stagecraft. Wow. You know, and it would have been a, would have been a blast. Right. And, and again, I, you know, I go back to my anecdote earlier. Yes. The album was moving slowly, but uh, two things would have made that thing own the charts for a good bit of time. And one of those was that Annie Leibovitz photo. If we had been able to see that cover photograph, not in a state of just traumatized abject mourning when that issue of Rolling Stone came out, it would have created an interesting sensation right around the country and the world. And then to follow that up with maybe a spring tour, you know, they're, they're number one on their own merits. And of course, that's what increasingly bands were doing at that point. It's like today, not COVID today, but today, you know, if you want to make money, you go on the road and you, you get out there and promote your album. That's why Paul McCartney was in Glasgow, right? right. In uh, December, 1979, it was to push back to the egg, which had felt sluggish. Yeah. Uh, and certainly mm -hmm. Columbia felt that way. <laughs> you know, Ken, you, we mentioned uh, the whole uh, relationship with Yoko. And obviously he would have toured with her because he did say, you know, it would be a, a tour with John and Yoko. Uh, he, I think he said, I hope they would have accept us. You know, I, I forgot what he said, but it was to be both of them. Uh, and, and you said, you know, he, would, he was her cheerleader uh, very much. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about you know, walking on thin ice, because we, we all know it's, you know, the last thing he was working on, but it was also, it showed John Lennon's chops that he didn't really lose his chops as a guitarist. Uh, some of his best work, I think, and most innovative work, but for her, not as John Lennon, but for Yoko Ono. I, well, I, 
I unabashedly adore that song and, and that production and the way uh, Jack and uh, the two of them got together and they basically rebuilt that song. They kept some of the track, the tracking that they looped from my understanding, but uh, they built that thing from the ground up. She came up with the wonderful spoken word poem, um, those great effects, uh, Jack looping when she's singing ice, ice, ice. It's just yeah. wonderful. Uh, the guitar solo, which I guess Jack gets a big assist from, gets a big assist on. You know, that's uh, it's just wonderful stuff. Can you imagine that live? Um, no. It would have been uh, oh. fabulous. In fact, you know, you can see Yoko perform it pretty well live on YouTube. Uh, yeah. You know, I recommend folks check that out. But um, it, it was just a tour de force. And they you can tell they were having a blast making it. In fact, they were making it last in a way. Mm. You know, did they really need to be there all those hours while they were working on it? You know, I, I think that it was just such a, a wonderful experience. And clearly, John was in love with the song. You know, by everyone's account, he was playing it over and over again, you know. But also, I have to do so. I get that. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. one thing about the the sessions, John didn't play on every Yoko song, which I no. never understood because he played he played differently as a guitarist as Walking on Thin Ice proves on her stuff than he did on his own stuff. And as approximately Infinite Universe points out too, or or Plastic yeah. Ono Band Yoko's version. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, there would have been some great live tunes there, too. Kiss, Kiss, Kiss would have been fun. Um, Every Man Has a Woman Who Loves Him. I can see those being, uh, you know, just great. Would they have done that as a, well, there's talk about speculation. Would they have done that as a duet live? I mean, that would have maybe been a, I mean, that would have been fascinating. You're right. I can't, if they I can't imagine. I can't, and I can't imagine John not being on stage and just eating all that up, <laughs> right. you know. That's for sure. Yeah. So, Ken, a quick question for you. Talk about the uh, the cheap trick version of uh, of I'm losing you. Yeah. You know, I'm not. Uh, uh, I differ a little bit from the main, the critical main here. I I love that version. I love that it's in the world. I love that we've had it. We've had it for a long time. But of course, in my brain, it felt like years till we really had a great version of it. You know what I mean? Um, yes. But but uh, so I'm still uh, traumatized by that interregnum. <laughs> but anyway, I, uh, I you know, I love it. And, and what the other song was I'm moving on. Mm -hmm. um, and they also tore that one up pretty good. Uh, yeah, you know, did. a lot of credit to them. Um, I can see why they didn't select those versions, though. You know, Me a, too. yeah, I mean, they're they're sort of misfits. Just, yeah, they are misfits because they're a little more crunchier on the heavy metal side. Yeah. Um, yeah, but if you think about it, think about Yoko songs. They were, you know, some of those songs were really out there where John's songs were very right down the middle of the main street. Yeah, um, and he loved talking about that. He had, he remember his line about that? Yeah, they're middle of the road, right down the middle of the road to the bank. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Great line. But they were also more polished. I mean, the whole album was very polished, even Yoko's stuff. So when you come to the, the Cheap Trick stuff, it's not as polished. It, like it's a little more punkish, and I don't think it would have fit with the rest. I mean, you know, that the, they would that those songs were the only ones that didn't use the double fantasy band, uh, and most of them. So right. you know, I like you know, like Andy Newmark on drums. And, right. So it was you know, it didn't it. Although, like you said, they're really good, and it's nice to have them out there. But I'm with you, Ken. I I I really like the the versions of those two songs that are on the album much better. Just yeah, my own and, and imagine, you know, if we're going to fantasize and once you start talking about tours, you are 
because we all know the awful truth. I mean, it wouldn't have been interesting to see them make an album with Cheap Trick. Oh. Cheap Trick as the opening band on the tour. Mm. Sure. Yeah, well, <laughs> well, you know, John them. was known to be cheap, so it could have been just it Ooh, could be called uh, Cheap Planet. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I Ooh. had to. Come on. Ooh, his. Ooh, his to Mitch. <laughs> Thank you. Talk a little, little bit about Paul Goresh. I mean, he took some amazing photos. Uh, did you get to talk to Paul? I did not. Um, I, we texted or email messaged or maybe it was Facebook a long time ago, but it was nothing of substance. Um, and I think he's put everything on the record before he died that he was going to say. Um, yeah. He's just an interesting story, right? Um, you know, certainly in the way he gets involved is uh, we have words for that now that they didn't use then stalker. <laughs> Right. I mean, um, yeah. I, no, I mean, that's true. But he was a nice true. stalker. You know, yeah, he, the, he didn't shoot anyone. Right. But it was the well. brutal truth of it is, you know, that kind of behavior. It was the same thing sneaking backstage for a concert. Right. Today, they would lay you out. Oh, totally. <laughs> you know, you know um, it's, Tasers, just, yeah. it's just again, going back to our conversation before the break, it was a different time. Yeah. Um, and so Paul, but Paul goes to pretty extraordinary links and actually more problematic after the pretending to be a cable repairman part of the incident, more problematically, you know, with the telephoto lens across the street and, and those mm. sorts of things. Um, you know, that was behavior that um, definitely got under John's skin. And I think I do speculate a little bit. I mean, was he befriending or was he allowing Goresh Gorish to befriend him? simply because uh, he wanted to keep him in the right place in his life. You know, John was a smarter politician than people give him credit for. Um, he probably also just, you know, felt a kinship with him. All the folks I've talked to who knew him during that period or even tangentially would see him in the park or what have you, talked about how he was excited to talk to just about anybody, that he, right. liked, he was extremely human about things. In fact, folks would talk about how they would speak to him and no sooner had they done that than he wanted to find out about their lives. <laughs> right. That's what he was interested in. How are you doing? You know, tell me about what's it like to live, uh, you know, near the axle rods over there, you know, what's oh, it's that? nothing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, what's that? You know, but he, he was, he was genuinely interested and loved people. Yeah. You know, I yeah. wanted to bring up something important. Uh, you, you had access to a bunch of the photographers because Paul Goresh ended up being a photographer uh, for John Lennon, obviously watching the wheels picture sleeve and uh, stuff like that. But you had other pictures in there, like from Roger Farrington. Uh, what I wanted to ask was, because I the one thing I love about this book is that you give context to so many things and to so many pictures. So now there's, and we have to talk about that picture of John uh, with his arms raised in the studio, greeting Earl Slick. Um, I want to talk about that because now when you read the book, you could actually, and you see all the pictures that we've seen in the last 40 years, you can actually almost, almost like a flip book. You know, you can, you can see the action now because of, of the context, you know, given in your book. So I love that. Well, I appreciate that you notice that because that's the great value of aggregated scholarship, right? You're bringing <laughs> disparate stories together to give us a better version or a, hopefully a more complete picture 
mm-hmm. uh, pun intended in this case, <laughs> of what's happening. So yeah, Farrington, that was, that was uh, in the same two week period. I talked to Roger Farrington. We met up in Massachusetts near his home and uh, you know, we went picture by picture of every photo he took on August 7th, 1980. And he get he gets to the one, you know, and he, he said, Oh, that's when Earl Slick walked in. And suddenly I have, you know, it's my favorite photo from the entire sessions. And I said, okay, now I know what's going on. You know, right. I always just loved it. And of course it's yeah, a too. magnificent moment because Earl told me, uh, or slick as he's known that in that moment, uh, John was excited to see him and he was a little befuddled because he had not met John Lennon before. Um, in his memory. And of course, John <laughs> says, no, no, no. We worked on the Bowie sessions together. Come on. And Earl um, said, well, you know, I think I'd remember if I'd spoken to a Beatle. <laughs> uh, and then later he had to sort of admit, um, you know, that maybe, <laughs> maybe he had not always been entirely there uh, during those Bowie experiences they shared. So, but it became a running joke as, as things would be with John, you know, you can hear him in the outtake saying, do you remember me now? Do you remember me now? Uh, you know, it was sort of, uh, but, but Earl was actually fulfilling the role that Jack Douglas wanted him to fulfill. And that was to be this kind of wild card. Mm. You know, while you had these other guys who were very slick studio musicians, slick studio musicians, and I didn't even mean that. Ah, there you with go. These very long resumes. You know, Earl Slick was relatively young. Yeah. I love the story about you, McCracken. Tell that one. <laughs> oh, where he tells him that, you know, um, yeah. I know you've played on Paul's records. That was an audition, you know, to see. If <laughs> <laughs> such a such a great line, though. Well, and, and that's what he did, right? I mean, you go back uh, and read reminiscence by reminiscences by folks who spent time with him at any point over the years, and he would, for all of his own demons, and he was very open with us about the challenges he had about abandonment and loneliness and and all sorts of other issues. Um, he did his damnedest to help people feel at ease. Yeah, you know, Stuart Zolotaro, uh, who took that beautiful photo on the back cover of my book. Um, you know, he came to me out of the blue. He found me before anybody knew that this book was coming out. And he said, I want you to look at this photo. You can use it if you want. (laughs) Wow. And I, and you know, I've gotten these kind of emails before you guys probably have too many times and it's nothing, you know, it's like a photocopy of a photocopy. Oh, believe me. Yeah. And this thing comes through and it's this glossy, beautiful thing. (laughs) And I'm like, tell me the story. (laughs) <laughs> let's go and right. it's an amazing story he's uh he's working on his portfolio he's just gotten his ba uh i believe down in maryland and he happens to know helen seaman and helen's like you know john would probably let you take a shot of him and yoko you put it in your portfolio and of course he's got to be thinking yeah, that's not going to happen that's too good well he's up in the city he does what she says he calls up and uh the doorman's like yeah they'll be down in 10 minutes <laughs> that that's and 10 That's minutes amazing. later, they show up and, you know, John is having just a wonderful time ribbing this kid. He's like, you got to take more than one shot, you know, because what if it doesn't take, you know, and <laughs> and he's just having all this this fun with him. Uh, and then, you know, Stu takes these wonderful shots of them going up, I guess, Central Park West. Yeah. That's so cool. You know, the other shot that was really funny was well, not funny, but that led to a great story, which we've seen before, the one of. John with, with Paul Goresh, um, and it looks like John has something under his arm. And you tell the story about that. And there's a, a great line by John at the end of that story. 
when, when yeah, that's just, the one with the on the that's on release day yeah. uh and they're up front and he, he gave a copy to uh to paul and um, some guy walked up and said hey you're giving those away and john's like yeah you just need to go over to the sam goody over <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's record yeah. sales that's what it's, it's called right. you always got to be selling yeah, yeah that's great his first prize is um it's a set of steak knives <laughs> you don't want second prize yeah you didn't want paul getting the steak knives i mean geez <laughs> I mean, Paul McCartney getting. No, no, yeah, of course. Well, he was already dead by then. He died at 66. I don't know if. No, no, I, mean, oh, I know. I said. I, uh, oh, there you go. Got it. <laughs> yeah, oh, he man. did it. I love those stories, though. I mean, they just, um, they're they're oh, yeah. lovely, and uh, they they tell the you know they really do add a lot of color, so to speak, to to the pictures, the stories, you know, themselves. When you see them now, you think of that story, so it's not just a picture. And, and also, too, though, Ken, you put it in perspective also, you know, I mean, we, we keep talking about that there are parents that they're but, you know, he was also in a way reacting the way any parent of a five year old who is now finally getting out of the house. Don't talk to anybody. You know, it's, it's that not just that he's John Lennon, it's this idea of, you know, I've been in the house watching Sesame Street for the last five, you know, however many years. So there was probably an element of that, too, that just to be out, back out in the world again and, you know, with musicians and with people who, you know, speak the lingo, get the jokes, you know, um, that had to be a welcome thing for him in such a big way. So, so well, absolutely. one thing I, I, I liked about your book, and it's 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 the fact that, you know, we've, we hear this. We've heard the stories, you know, Yoko bought the, you know, sold cows for two hundred fifty thousand dollars or. You know, they bought a place down in Miami Beach, which right now is is up for sale. Or they had a place out in Long Island. This was, if you think about it, they weren't the first ones to do this, but they got a lot of publicity for it. I mean, the Stones recording Exile on Main Street for tax reasons in France is just a similar variation of, you know, Yoko buying or selling cows or buying real estate. And I think at the time, and I think in the book, it it, it shows it, this is what rock stars had to do to save their money. They just couldn't put in the, you know, the Roosevelt savings bank. But in Ken's book, it comes <laughs> off like the, the, the cool thing about it is it's got the perspective of this is this like domestic couple and this is how they function together, which is yeah. kind of cool. Like you think about the stones and the stones are, you know, a bunch of messed up dudes who have good businessmen working for them. You know, <laughs> we know Jagger's really, really an accountant at heart, but but with John and Yoko, there's just that funny aspect to it of the domestic couple. It's just like at the end of the song, you know, you know, just stay around for a little while. Don't just go and buy a cow. Well, you and, know? and, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because we talked about the cheerleading aspect. She did him a big solid by taking over the morass of the Beatles. You know, they, this was a different phase. So the early phase in the early 1970s was. OK, Paul's suing us to end the partnership. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so they have to work through that. Um, and the uh, the unbelievable litigation associated with that story. Well, then that gets taken care of. And then the next thing you know, we're going to watch the EMI contract come to a conclusion. And then we're all going to be at sea. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and we need to yeah. be working at our deals. And they all work them out at different paces. Right. And of course, John doesn't necessarily want to have a deal, but still, he has all this product and all these commodities out there that are not disaggregated uh, from the others. So they, they kill Apple 
and of course, then they go into the process of what we now know is rebuilding it. Yeah. Um, Very ironic so, that Yoko would deal with the Beatles stuff, considering, you know, she broke up the Beatles. You know? Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And and, you know, if anything, she's been helping to keep them alive. Uh, and oh, she yeah. certainly took a burden off of his plate that he sent. Sure. Oh, excuse me, a burden off of his shoulders. Uh <laughs> making <laughs> metaphors i i could feel rob's criticism um you know just the burden off of john's shoulders that he certainly would have wilted under he hated that stuff by that point i mean it would yeah. upset him yeah. and, and it Alan probably Klein allowed him to feel better yeah and it allowed him to feel better about the other guys yeah, yeah. And not having to yeah. think about that in the same way so they built this company linono they ran it out of, uh, you know, the first floor office and it now had a place and a function. And she deserves a lot of credit for that. You bet. But he wasn't, a, you know, in the book, he even said, uh, you know, I didn't sit home and bake bread every day. You know, I, I baked it a, a couple of times. I mean, he, everybody always thought he's for five years. He sat there and just baked bread. He really didn't do that. Lazy writers. Yeah. Well, and, and he also said, you know, when when somebody finally asked him some more in-depth questions, he goes, yeah, I baked it. But, you know, it kind of pissed me off. You'd make the bread and you'd feel good about yourself and people are eating it <laughs> because you know why? They like fresh bread. Yeah. It, smells yeah. good. it goes great with tea and coffee. You bet. Everything. <laughs> My wife makes fresh bread. Absolutely. But that's, you know, that's the humorous part of it. It's like, you know, John would put the effort into making a record. And it's there forever. You put it on a turntable. You can listen to it all the time. You make a loaf of bread. It's gone. <laughs> like, yeah, that's it. You know. Yeah, and people are saying, so, "Where's the next loaf of bread?" Right, yeah, exactly. right, right, right away. Yeah, exactly. Ken, um, how important you you just talking about Yoko and 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 supporting you know John's work. One thing I thought Yoko did, which is still incredible, if you think about it, was the lost Lennon tapes. I mean, yeah, what a gift. I mean, right. how much how much did you get out of listening, not listening to it as a fan, because that's when it first came on, but as a writer, because obviously you had to go back and listen to some of the stuff. I went back and listened to all of the stuff. Uh, and, you know, you know, when you take that um, storehouse, it's a lot to listen to. It absolutely is. You know, you're talking about thousands of hours when you when you really accumulate it, uh, because there were so many different takes of things. Right. Um, you add that to the outtakes from the sessions and you're talking about just, a, you know, a sheaf of material. Yeah, it was absolutely invaluable, you know, and uh, one of the great gifts she gave to us in our extended morning, which frankly hasn't stopped. Uh, you know, if we're going to be honest about it, it's not a wound that gets better with age. It becomes more acute. Um, one of the great gifts she gave to us was letting that go out into the world, knowing full well, you know, uh, what would happen with it and that we all have it in some form or another. But, you know, thank goodness for it. Right. It allows us to understand the um, almost the archaeological history of how the songs get made. And just plus to hear the, the joy of hearing him having a great time. Yeah. As, as, a, as a professor of music, it's I'm sure you look at it a little differently than than many people, not just uh, liking it or enjoying it. You know, Sure. You know, in class. That. So when we've talked about a song like Watching the Wheels in class, we taught we we start at the beginning, right? Uh, in one of its earliest manifestations, it was what? I'm crazy. So we listen to those. And then you listen to the version where John tries it sort of like revolution, picking out a, an old guitar tune. And that's one of my favorites, because at the end, he starts making fun of the captain and Tennille. Mm. <laughs> 
because like us, he was watching that terrible variety show that was on, <laughs> you know, uh, no offense, Tony. Um, she's still with us. Not you, Tony. Oh, I, mean, I, I know you love it. Yeah. Do that to me one more time. <laughs> there you go. So, <laughs> Just once is it. never enough. It is never enough for a, a Tony like you. <laughs> anyway, uh, you know, wait, it, they were friends wonderful to go through the Mesozoic, the Mesozoic layers of how those songs are made. Right. Because yeah. then we can talk about we can extrapolate ideas about compositional practices, um, the ones that are very particular to John Lennon. But then the similarities to how other folks write, even classical artists. Yeah. You know, yeah. Ken, um, the album we, we talked about, the album not selling well as well as they wanted. It's all well, but it didn't sell as well as they thought. Uh, a lot of critics said that John was soft and they and they picked Yoko's songs over John's. Um, I, you know, I, I have to, I have to personally disagree. I really think that, you know, songs like woman are, you know, we did a show on classics and standards and, you know, that's one that is both a classic and a standard now. Um, and, and it's a beautiful song then. And, and starting over was a great first single. Watching the wheels. <laughs> yeah. I mean, watching the wheels. Exactly. You know, it, to me, I never got the criticism that it was quote soft i really didn't okay but again, you know i and i i agree with you and i think john was ahead of his time mm -hmm. and, and he's talking about very grown-up adult sort of things that right. you know rock and roll wasn't known for at that point you know um and uh i i think that i think that's part of the difference but then there's this this very historically important moment where critics um, particularly the UK critics uh, are engaging in identity politics. You know, they're championing different styles. They're, you know, trying to push rock under a rock, if you will. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of uh, angst and nastiness, quite frankly, in a lot of that criticism, you know, and it doesn't necessarily hold up well today. But yeah, Abbey Road was, you know, you've read those reviews. Oh, yeah. Uh, there are people in the moment not understanding Abbey Road. There are others who immediately get the, the beauty and power of the medley, right? But there are some that are just, you know, lacerating that thing. Sergeant Pepper had a few of those, too. So Revolver had Ray yeah. Davies did Revolver. That's yeah. right. Yeah, he was on assignment, remember? Uh, <laughs> but in, in, the case of, in the case of Double Fantasy, there is a very particular kind of critical attitude uh, that just lacerates John in particular, you know, as though it's cool to pick on, you know, the guy who, oh my God, is 40. <laughs> because of course we thought 40 was 80 or 50 at least, or 60 at that time. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, there's so much of that uh, as part of that story, you know, people flexing their riderly muscles because 1980 was the end, not the end, but it was the culmination of a long period of inventing rock journalism you know by, by 1980 you know we all got rolling stone in that year we could name a lot of the critics by name oh yeah and we were we were younger than we are now <laughs> right? right so but we wow. i could name probably i was 14 and i could name 20 or 25 rock critics easily uh at that point so there'd been this this creation of the rock and roll music press rock and roll journalism and those guys were engaged in a lot of differentiation and creating their brands. And some of those brands were built on the backs of 
being really nasty. <laughs> and also, you know, Reagan had just been elected in November of 80. Right. And, you know, a lot of people weren't happy about that. And uh, I'm sure that's part of the whole background in Great Britain. You know, they hated Thatcher. Oh, and, and they, yeah. And they and felt punk the same rock about was it. much more active in well, the whole crowd of, of Great Britain for younger people than in America. You know, America well, if, became new wave. If you remember, Rob, I mean, I've, I've talked a number of times in the show where, you know, I mean, I think in a way, I mean, I always liked John's contributions to double fantasy, but I had to grow into John's stuff. When I was 15, I was listening more to what Yoko was doing. Hmm. My, my musical, I'd grown up hardcore on the Beatles, but I was really into XTC and, and, you know, is there a way to just, is there a way to mute Tony? (laughs) (laughs) Cause I, you didn't give me any instructions. Believe me, there's no way to mute Tony. (laughs) That is not my experience at all. I remember hearing every one of his songs and thinking I'm loving these. Me too. I was, I I like watching the wheels. I really appreciate because I knew it was the backstory, you know, so I was loving that, but, I remember, you know, I remember thinking to myself, he's back. I was so delighted that he was back. And I was so looking forward to the story going on. But I was looking at John's music almost as like, oh, this is the story. This is John. You know, this is where he's at now. But in terms of just musically being stimulated, I was I was more like my ears were going over, over the Yoko material because that's just musically at 15 at the time, 14 at the time, I think that 15, I think that's just where my head was in terms of what else I was listening to. So I think I'm yes, your was, angel was what you were listening to. No, not yes. I am angel, but you know, I mean, the stuff like kiss, kiss, kiss la, 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 la. and, and, you know, <laughs> and I, I mean, it, it's interesting, but I just remember thinking that when I got starting over in kiss, 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 I remember thinking I'm going to probably play the B side of this a little more often. I'll love it in I'll love starting over in context with the album, but I was I was more you know, again delighted. But I was in in the Yoko stuff. I remember when playing the single too, and think and and loving that B side. Yeah, fourteen because it sounded kind of dirty, and I remember it was dirty. I remember like upstairs in my room thinking, is the door shut? Am I going (laughs) to? This is another one of the things I'm going to get in trouble for, you know. Well, it, it really was dirty. I mean, you know, and that was but that was also part of the non-appeal for me. And I don't mean it because I'm a prude or anything. But when you, you know, Although there you, was appeal for me in that. I, <laughs> we had not been disco. We had not been disco people, guys. So we hadn't had That's the 20. True. Well, you didn't have I feel baby. love. Right. But we Donna didn't have Summer. I feel love and love to love you, baby. So we you know, this was new for us. I did life. hear it. I just didn't. But, you know, the thing is. If you didn't like Yoko prior, and I don't mean personally, if you didn't like her, her music, her art, um, then with this, yes, the music itself was good. But, you know, her singing, let's face it, is not the best. So it was the best out of everything she'd probably done to that point. It was very, very thought out. I don't want to say pop because it wasn't pop, but it was thought out rock and loudness. I thought, you know, she cared about trying to hit the notes. I think yes, it was but, some of the most melodic singing of her career. I, I yeah. loved Approximately Infinite Universe, but I think, Ken, you even mentioned that in the book, that this, one, of the, one of the musicians or somebody comments that she's at her most melodic vocally on that record. Well, and, and, and actually, here, let's go back to the Lost Linen tapes and all those outtakes. You know, when yeah. you have occasion to hear those songs being built, 
she went through several variations until she yeah. got the vocal she liked. And Walking on Thin Ice, the original versions that they were cutting in August and September, her voice is not nearly what we hear, you know, on that that wonderful single. Yeah. Um, you know, so <laughs> kudos to her. She had, she had great vocal control. Yeah. Um, and, oh, yeah. you know, I love Approximately Infinite Universe, but 14-year-old me didn't know about that. Exactly. You know, right. um, obviously, 14-year-old me was more mature as a listener than 15-year-old you, Tony. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm really picking up on that. Um, but that's probably for another. That's, that's another show. Yeah, oh, that's a whole enjoying, other show. I was enjoying Mrs. Costello and Jackson at the time. So that was, that was where I was. That's where I was going. I was uh, much in my Costello phase. Who, who is the smarter? Who's the smarter listener? We'll say it's a whole other show. That's a whole other show. I want to get there. <laughs> well, Ken, I want to thank you for joining us on our show. Your book is called John Lennon, 1980, The Last Days in the Life published by Omnibus Press, and where you can buy it any place you find uh, books uh, or wherever you go. You also have a, a podcast, if I'm not mistaken. That's true. Yeah, it's a new venture with uh, our friends at Salon.com. Um, we've been working on developing it for quite some time, and uh, it's, uh, it's called Everything Fab Four, where uh -huh. I talk to so folks. it's about the Beatles. It's about the Beatles, but I, I typically talk to folks um, you know, for example, I've got an episode coming up with uh, John Anderson of Yes about his Beatles origin story. Cool. You know, and then, of course, then we can branch out into their other stories about, you know, say, yes, um, or what <laughs> have you. At, uh, the fact, the one I have to edit this weekend is John Oates. Oh, um, nice. It was really fascinating because he did not like the Beatles at first. Ooh. He was down in Ooh. Philly and they had like kind of an attitude about it. I always like Daryl Holt better anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. And then I sewed my oats. <laughs> oh, well, oh, well, boom. that was good. Anyway, uh, on that funny note, we <laughs> on that sad the show. Note. thank you, Ken, for joining us. Uh, you have a website that also NFWomack.com. All right. Thank you. I'm Rob Leonard. I've been your moderator today on the Fab Four Free For All. Joining me, of course, is Tony Traguardo. Hi, folks. Nice. And Mitch Axelrod. Take care, folks. Take care and bye-bye. Fab Four Free For All was edited and produced by Tony Chiguardo at Word of Mouth Studios in Westbury, New York. The opening and closing theme is My Dolly by the band The Badge, featuring longtime listener Jeff Slate, available on its debut album Digital Retro and recent Best Of compilation, as well as from the Fab Four Free For All website. Thanks for listening to Fab Four Free For All.